The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. You have your Bible this morning. I invite you to Hebrews chapter, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 1. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 1. And my preaching Bible exited the stage, so I'm going to grab a Bible. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 1. If you're visiting with us, we've been in a weeks-long series, a months-long series, uh, since January, the first of January in the book of Hebrews. We have now entered chapter 8, and all God's people said an enthusiastic, Amen. Because if you visited with us before, you know it took us three years to get through the book of Mark. Well, you are 63% of the way through the book of Hebrews, guys. This is the down-home stretch. We are getting there. We're trucking through there. But thank you, Pastor. I, I knew I left it somewhere. But as you come to this text, I want you to know that as we enter a summer break in this series next week, thank you, brother. As we enter a summer break next week, this week is specifically set up to remind you where we've been. You're going to see those words in verse 1. The point of what we're saying is this. You ever had someone, uh, don't, don't mention my name, you ever had someone who talks so long, you just wish they'd say, the point I'm really trying to say is this, right? Well, the author of Hebrews is a good teacher. He's going to remind you about what this is, but he's going to get you there. Our series has been entitled since January, Greater Than. Today, it's Greater Than Types and Shadows. If you are able to stand, we, we do uh, just a, a biblical tradition, if you will, here as we stand in honor of reading God's word. Thank you for doing so if you're able. We're just reading verses 1 to 5. Uh, we're reading out of the ESV, which is the Pew Bible. And uh, these first five verses are very clear-cut and straightforward. But once again, we pray that you see Christ in a culture where he is not. But here in our church, we pray and in our lives that he is high and lifted up. May our gaze ever go higher than it is on most days. Verse 1 says, now the point, the writer of Hebrews says, and what we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for the priest also to have something to offer. Verse 4, now if he were on earth, he would not have been a priest at all, since there are the priests who offer gifts according to the law. But, verse 5, they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect a tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See, quote, that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. As we come to this time, as we get ready to read it, I just hope that we bask in the glory of Jesus Christ, because that's what we're here to do. It's about Christ above anything and everything else. And so may we see him, may you be encouraged by him as we look at four traits that separate Jesus once again from the other priests that are in this world. Will you bow your heads with me? And afterwards we'll be seated. Father, thank you for our time. We pray as we enter this time of study that you are glorified. You're the aim, Father. You are the one we seek to please. Move me out of the way. Speak, Lord, as only you can. For anyone watching online, for anyone here in person, Lord, just the weeks that we bring into this, whether they've been crazy or normal, we, we come to hear your word. We want you to speak through your word, Lord. 
for that is how you say you speak. By your spirit, apply what we hear to our lives, not just rhetoric, not just words or commentary, but Lord, by your spirit, drive us deep down to where we need it most, which is closer in our hearts and our minds and our actions every day. We pray these things in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen. May be seated. Well, as we come to this time, there's a story told of a little boy who went home from Sunday school, and there might have been a picture like this. Uh, by the way, this is not Jesus. This is Obi-Wan Kenobi. If you're a Star Wars fan, or Star, yeah, Star Wars, right? Not Star Trek. I, I, what, Star something. But the little boy came home, and his grandmother asked him, how was Sunday school? And, and he said, oh, he, we had a new teacher, and guess who it was? And the grandmother said, who was it? And, and, and the young boy, probably five or six, said, it was Jesus' grandmother. And there was that awkward silence, and she said, well, what made you think of that way? And he answered as a little boy could and said, well, all she did was show us pictures of this guy named Jesus and tell stories about him. Clearly, she must have been his grandmother. (laughs) There is something about the book of Hebrews that resounds with that illustration, isn't it? Because the book of Hebrews is like a doting grandmother or grandfather who just tells you all about their grandkids. You know, I have friends on Facebook, when they have a baby, they put alerts up that say, caution, there's going to be like 50,000 pictures of the same baby. Oh, he's rolling this way. Oh, he's got his thumb in his mouth. Oh, my goodness, he's so cute. And we talk that way all the time. We all have something we love to talk about. Well, the book of Hebrews has been talking about one person, not just a person, but the God-man, Jesus Christ. And after a while, you got to say, man, can we talk about something else for a change? Is brighter of Hebrews? I mean, can you talk about the weather? Can you talk about the humidity? He wants to talk about Jesus. And I know this book simply says you cannot take your eyes off Jesus. He's writing, if you recall, to a baffled, buffeted, harassed, persecuted, under the gun, persecuted Christians who at times were growing cold in their faith and dull in their faith. But he reminds them, just like that illustration, it's about Jesus. And how often do we come to church and it's about this or it's about that and we lose our focus about what it's really about. It's about the Son of God risen from the dead who bore the wrath for us. And Christ is just what they needed. And it's exactly what we need in these days ahead. We need more of Christ. Colossians 2.17 that Nelson did not read says this. It says, these are a shadow of things to come, speaking of the law, but the substance belongs to Christ. Christ is it. The buck stops with him. He's the bottom line, the foundation. He is all that. He's the bomb. He's every other phrase you can throw at him. It's about Jesus. Our lives, our churches, our culture is about Christ. Should be. But sometimes the Sunday school answers are the right answers. The Bible, your life, everything should really be about Jesus Christ. To know all that we know about Jesus and still be indifferent as some of these Hebrew Christians were is no small sin. So friend, we're going to read it, we're going to note every line, and then we're going to ask the question, do I believe in the Jesus that this book of Hebrews talks about? Or do I believe in someone else? You know, CNN, I know I shouldn't be saying what sources I read, but sometimes I read sources, right? CNN had an article yesterday that says they they believe in Jesus but have two different perspectives, speaking about cultural issues. And friends, you may feel that very weight these days as you see friends and family who differ with you about things in the culture and where the Bible stands on them. But I want to remind you, there is one Jesus. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And if you don't start there, then we don't have the same Jesus. And it ain't even close. 
because the writer of Hebrews has said he is the superior to everyone. He is above all. He, everyone answers to him, and there's coming a day we will give account to him. The big idea today, if you're visiting Lane, if your Lane brain has kicked in, the big idea is the summary, right? The thesis, Lane, it hasn't been that long. But since you left us, brother, you got hitched, and you just, you, wow. I mean, hi, Lane. It's welcome back. I know. The big idea today, the summary, if you're visiting, is when you come to Christ, you don't just get the kingdom, but you get the king. God's greatest gift to us is the gift of himself. You can live your whole life and be around Jesus, familiar with Jesus, filled with good ideas about Jesus, and still not really believe in Jesus. You can. It doesn't matter how long you've been walking with him. If you really know Christ, it's because he is your great high priest. It's all about him. And this morning, I want to show you those four traits. Jesus is going to be shown as having a perfect standing, seating, uh, excuse me, for exceeding sanctuary, sacrifice, and substance. But the book is very simple. It's about Christ. And Tower View, I want you to know, in the days ahead, as long as this pulpit is here, this church is going to be known it's about Christ. That's it. How we love each other how we don't get mad at each other or gossip about each other. When someone does something against us, we treat each other as Christ would treat us. Even if it's hard to offer or receive forgiveness, it's about Christ. And that's what it's about. So I want to show you the four things this morning that Christ is perfect in, that separates him as the perfect high priest, your high priest, my high priest. And the first way is he summarizes this whole last seven chapters is this. Christ has a perfect seating, a perfect seating. To put it in very simple terms, Jesus did not go up to the box office at Ticketmaster and ask for the nosebleed seats. He was front and center on the stage, and he sat down. And that's what it said. Look back at verse 1. Now, the point in which we're saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who's seated at the right hand of the throne in the majesty of heaven. I love summaries. I love cliff notes. I probably survived every college class I took with cliff notes. They still have cliff notes today. Summary things where you, Lane is shaking his head and he's young enough to know. Uh, you remember what cliff notes are. Or you, you generation, you remember Reader's Digest. So they still have those around. You don't really read a book, but you hear about a book. Today they sell you services where you can pay $15 a month where they summarize a book for you. And you can go around to people and say, oh, I've read that book. I've read that book. Summaries are good, but especially the summary that is here because it, the main point, the big idea, the bottom line is, is that Jesus has a perfect seating. Well, what are we saying? First, he's seated, note, at the right hand. He's seated at the right hand. We've seen that language before. It literally means that he sat down. Every priest in the Old Testament always stood up. They're always walking around. Literally, they were almost always slaughtering animals because that's what it took to forgive sins, symbolically a temporary covering. But he's seated at the right hand. This speaks of his sinless perfection. It speaks that only God himself could sit down. I mean, you remember the disciples, don't you? They came up to uh, Jesus and said, Jesus, which among us is the greatest? And he looked at them, probably laughing inside, as only God can, Psalm 2, and said, you guys are nuts. It's not for me to give authority to sit at my right hand. The greatest among you will be last, and the first will be last, and the last will be first. It's a great way to go through buffet lines at a Baptist church. If you're first, we're kicking you back to last. That's, that's just a little note for the future. But no one could come into the presence of God unless he's perfectly holy as God is. He sat down. It speaks of his sinless perfection. 
But you also notice here it speaks of his finished work. Again, a priest didn't have a chair sitting there in the Holy of Holies where he sat down and commanded all the other priests. They were always busy. They were like a little parent with a toddler. They were always up and doing things. The priests could never sit down because the sins could never secure the removal of their sin. Jesus came once and he died once for all so that we would know him. John 19.30, that great memory verse that you should have well memorized says, It is finished. What is finished? Jesus, no, Jesus isn't finished. He resurrected from the dead. But the work that he came to resolve is finished. But you notice that he's also seated at the right hand. Did you notice the Father's not mentioned here? The Spirit's not mentioned here? Look how he describes him in verse 1. As he's seated perfectly, Jesus is. He's at the throne of the majesty in heaven. Why didn't he just say the Father? Why didn't he just say God? Why did he say majesty? It's a figure of speech to draw you into what is happening here. He's drawing you into the throne room of God to remind you that God is always on his throne. And as our nation rages, whether you're on one side of the issue or another side of an issue, as our nation rages, you need to remember that your God is on his throne, church. And he ain't moving. And he's got this. If we are faithful to Christ, he is faithful to us, even if we are faithless. There's never had any other way to be offered our sins except that the majesty on high, the Father, would seat his son perfectly, saying, it is done. It's kind of like you, to put it in very simple terms. Some of you guys, after you go mow your yard, what's the first thing you do? You go sit in your favorite chair and you kick up your feet, and you got grass all over you, you stink like the dickens, and you just sit down in your favorite chair because you... And then you wake up and you look over your lawn and you think, boy, I just did that. Yeah. That's what real men do, right? That's a simple illustration. But when Jesus sits down, he thinks about all of us. He doesn't have to say, I did that. He's God. He did it once for all. That was always the plan. He did it for you. He did it for me. And Amy will put this up if you're taking notes on the back. Because he is seated, speaking of Christ, you can be seated too. Stop trying to bend God's ear your way by being super Christian spiritual person. Stop trying to overachieve your Christian life and think that God's going to love you more simply because you've checked a few more boxes than the people next to you. Don't hold your badge of pride so high because you have more Bible memory verses, you know more theology, you, 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 whatever, better than this other Christian. We are all equal at the cross. We all are seeking the same Christ. Because he's seated, you don't have to prove to God that he loves you more than the next person. He loved you once and forever the same because he sent his son once for you, forever the same with the same mission. He can't love you less today. What an awesome God. It is perfectly seated. He's perfectly seated. But I want to remind you, church, he is coming again. In Revelation 18, with all authority, he has a name written on his side that no one can understand. He's coming in all power and glory where he came very meekly the first time. He's coming with the blood of his enemies, and we have no apology for that because he's given them warning after warning after warning. Come to me, return to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, but he's coming again. 
Someday he's not going to be seated. And someday he's riding through the clouds in a white horse as it is in the battle of Armageddon. And all the world may assemble together. But Jesus, with the word of his mouth, will just boom and obliterate it all. And it all goes for naught because he's the perfectly seated, perfectly coming son of God. And that's what we know. But without him being the son of God, none of that is possible. He is perfectly seated. Notice, secondly, another trait that separates him from everybody else is that he is the perfect sanctuary. He's ministering in the perfect sanctuary. Look at verse 2. He says, a minister, your Bible may not have that word. It may be a servant or or something like that, a priest perhaps. But verse 2 in the ESV says, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. I am going to use his name, and I've thought long and hard about this, and I make no apologies for it in this sense. Last week in our Southern Baptist Convention, almost two weeks ago now, we had one of our famous ministers, Rick Warren, stand up. His church was about ready to get booted out of the Southern Baptist Convention for a variety of things. I'll tell you more about that later. But instead of defending his church, he stood up in a now famous six-minute reel and got up and basically listed off everything he had ever done for people everywhere. You could see the pride just like a helium balloon taking on helium. And as I read through this, I love my brother, and I believe he's in the faith. We may disagree on things in some respect. I believe he's a brother. But I pray we look at this verse. Do you see what, where the true sanctuary is, where the true temple is, and who put it there and what it's not for? It's in heaven. It's not this local church. And it's not about me, which is ironic because that very man, Rick Warren, in his very famous book, in the openings of Purpose Driven Life, has a famous phrase saying, it's not about you. Be very careful that even when we know Christ, we don't boast beyond what we can boast in. What can you boast in as a Christian? That I was blind, but now I see. I was a fallen sinner, but now I'm saved. But yet we have one who can boast fully because he is perfectly in the sanctuary. What is he saying here? It says he's a minister. It says that in verse 1, it says he was seated. So how is he ministering? I mean, you'd assume it would say here in verse 2 that this is a perfect sovereign. He's a perfect king. No, he's, he's a minister. Jesus is working on your behalf even now. Salvation is secure. Check. But he's praying for you. He's advocating for you. He's, he's going before the Father on your behalf. And it says here it's a perfect place. Well, what is this perfect place? It says, first off, there's a, there's a holy place. Well, this, well who's holy? The Father, the Son, the Spirit, the, the angels are holy, the redeemed of God are holy. And that's where they sing that famous hymn that we sing well. Holy, holy, holy. The only thing ever said in the triplicate in Scripture about the attributes of God is holy, holy, holy. It's never love, love, love or wrath, wrath, wrath. Isaiah 6 says it's holy, holy, holy. Jesus is perfectly ministering in a place that is perfectly suited for those who've been made holy. What a contrast where the priests minister or the churches today, where even pastors cannot be holy. We stand before you as one person leading another person to bread, unholy as we are humanly, but perfectly situated righteously in Christ as we all are in Christ. But there is no place for sin or unbelief there. He also said it's a true tent. Your Bible may say tabernacle. Do you remember what the tabernacle was? Uh, some people were designated in the uh, Exodus to carry around the tabernacle. It was, it was like a, I, I hate to say it in such words, it was like a pop-up church. Can we say it in so many words? 
How many of y'all have those little shade things that you put out? We use them at track meets where you put them up there, and it's like four little poles, and it pops up the tent like an awning. I mean, that's really what the tabernacle was. By God's design, it was a, it, they walked around with it, and they would put it wherever they stopped for the day or night or weeks on end, and it was a place of worship. God told Moses to do that. And in a sense, it was a temporary shadow. The tabernacle was real and genuine, but this true tabernacle in verse 2 that is spoken of, a true tent, is in heaven. It's a place where God dwells. Where is God right now? He's in heaven. Where's Christ right now? He's ministering. What's he doing? He's praying. He's advocating before the Father for you. But you notice the third thing it says about this, the Lord pitched it. The Lord set it up or pitched it, not man. There wasn't a Baptist building committee that's in heaven trying to build the tabernacle. Oh, hey, we should paint it pink. Or, oh, hey, we should paint it blue. You ever want to get two Baptists on the same page? Don't give them a building something because they're never going to agree. Amen? Come on, guys. You got to laugh at some of this stuff. That's who we are. But here the Lord set it up. And he did it by his offering of himself, the Lord Jesus did. The true tent that the Lord set up, not man. That is good to know because in heaven, there's no imperfect people ministering to you. There's a perfect one who's ministered once for you and is doing that forever and ever and ever and ever. What are you going to be doing in heaven? You're going to be serving in this tabernacle. Did you know that? I don't know what it's going to look like. I don't know how it's going to work. I don't know if some of y'all are going to be in the hallelujah choir, the holy, holy, holy choir, or whatever you got, but you're going to be working in heaven, but it won't be work. It'll be selfless, perfect, genuine joy because we're with the one who gave himself in the same way. Remember what Hebrews 12 says, for the joy set before him, he went to the cross. What an awesome God we serve. Amy, if you want to go ahead and put up this next thing. One of those old dead guys, really, really old dead guys, John Flavel. If you've never read him, you ought to write that name down. He said this quote, he said, Jesus, our head. Let's be clear here. Jesus, you're not literally walking around with the head of Jesus, right? I'm not trying to be facetious, but you, Jesus is the head of the church, is already in heaven, he said. And if the head, that is Jesus, be above water, the body cannot drown. Well, who's the body? The church. The point he's trying to make based on reflection on Hebrews 2 is, is that if, if things are going crazy down here, they're all in control up there. And if they're all in control up there, then even if the worst comes to worst down here, he ain't going to let us go. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the people of God or the church of God. Take comfort in that. If you're God's child, you must always view yourself in the world through the window and the person of work of Christ. You're never cursed with guilt, blighted by shame, or left unforgiven. Because of what he's done for you here, he continues to do up there. He'll take you there someday. But what happens down here in the churches of America as God weeds out sheep from goats over time, God is still in control, and he still has it, and he's still working through it to his glory. He's in the perfect sanctuary. He's perfectly seated. But finally, or thirdly, I want you to see he's the perfect sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice. As you look at verse 3, I want to note to you, to be really greeky geeky with you for a second, all the verbs so far that you've seen, you technical people, I know there's a few in here who love this stuff, all the verbs so far have been in the present tense. Do you know what that means? If I say I loved my wife, I could say that was in the past. But if I say I still love my wife, that's in the present. 
Or if I say I might love my wife, that eh, may not happen in the future. Jesus, everything that's been said about him is active. It's ongoing. It hasn't stopped. That's good news. Because if it stopped, you would stop too. Because Jesus holds you together. Every neuron in your brain holds together by his grace and power. Notice for the perfect sacrifice, verse 3. It says, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Notice what's being said there. These priests had to bring plural. Did you notice the S at the end of what's being said here? The priests had to bring a gift. They had to bring something to the temple per the law to fulfill the duties and discharge the duties that were given to them. They had to do everything by the book as God prescribed. But it was not necessary for Jesus to do this. Jesus himself offered one gift. Note the singular there. And that word offered is in a very unique tense. I want to just bear with me for a second. It is in a tense of the Greek language that means it was done once and it will never be repeated with ongoing results. Do you understand what he's trying to say here? His sacrifice was done one time, and the results of what Jesus did continue on as they were then for all time for all those who call upon him. He did that once for all. Now, I want to be clear here. Some of you had some questions about this this week, and I think they're good questions. What does once for all mean? Once for all does not mean for all people. What do you mean? Once for all does not mean for all people. It means for all time. Because look, is everyone going to believe in Jesus Christ? Nope. Or is everyone going to go to heaven? Nope. Who goes to heaven? Those who believe on Jesus. When he says he died once for all, what he means is for all those who trust in him for all time, that one event carries the impact forever and ever and ever and ever. The first time he came, there was a sin problem. The second time he came, he righted every sin and will right every sin. Any other priest could not find acceptance through God except through offering what he did. And Christian and Amy will put this up, if you will, please. Can I remind you this morning, the reason you were created and the reason Jesus redeemed you was to join him on mission in this world. Do not miss this in the mix of everything else. Do not miss why you were created. Do not miss what Christ has done for you. This is what life is all about. He saved you once for all for one time so that you would go and tell people until all the time is left that he is king of kings and Lord of lords. Can I just say a word for a second? Fighting moral issues is a real fight for American Christians, and we ought to stand for life from womb to tomb. That is what Christians have believed forever and a day. But do not let the gospel slip out of whatever arguments you are going with. Friends, if all we are doing is making people more moral, we're no better than the Pharisees who tried to lay law upon law upon law of those in the first century. We start with the gospel first. Remember what 1 Corinthians 15 said. Paul reminded them what was of first importance. Was it cultural issues? Was it debates? Was it what? The first importance for the church then and now is the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, Darren, you always talk about that. Why is it so important? Because it's the foundation by which we launched everything else. 
Don't let the culture tell you what you should be talking. If churches would preach more of the gospel, if us members and us pastors would share more of the gospel, then we would see churches and this culture change because the gospel changes lives. Laws do not. That may scare you or, or whatever you, but you need to be reminded of that. The law cannot change the human heart. Go back to the Old Testament. If you were in Sunday school today, Rehoboam, Solomon's son, knew the law. Jeroboam knew the law, but they both became bywords. They both became cuss words, if you will, for the nation of Israel because the way they lived their lives. The law does not change a heart. God working through the, the spoken word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. All those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's how we come to Christ. So as you think about your country, as you think about the mission you have in this nation, I want to remind you, Christian, if you have a choice between arguing for a cultural issue or pointing someone back to Jesus Christ, 100% you point them back to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice, and he did it one time. Jesus doesn't change, and either does his eternal gift. May we focus on that in everything that we do. And may I say how we treat each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. You have more in common, Christian, with someone who is of a different skin color, a different ethnicity, who has a different bank account than you, who is redeemed and saved in Jesus Christ than you do with someone of your same political party. Because in, in, in heaven, we're not worshiping an elephant. We definitely ain't worshiping a donkey. If you're a Christian, we worship one person, and his name is Jesus, the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. That's what unites us. Don't let the world divide that for us. Finally, perfect seating, perfect sanctuary, perfect sacrifice, and finally, a perfect substance. I'll define that in a second. Will you look at me in verses 4 and 5 as we close our message out? He says in verses 4, he says in verse 4, now, if he were on earth, as speaking of Christ, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve, verse 5, a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on, uh, on the earth. And he says there, this is a hypothetical, if he were on earth. Jesus isn't on earth. Aren't you grateful for that? He's not on earth. There is a perfect substance here. He would not be a priest. Well, why wouldn't Jesus be a priest? Remember? The law said the priest had to come through the tribe of which? Do you remember? Tribe of Levi, right? Jesus did not come through Levi. He came through Judah. He came through all those wicked kings that came out from the southern kingdom that we're studying right now in Sunday school and small groups. He would have been disqualified for that. But Jesus is in a sense a layman. He's not a formal priest. He wasn't in the priesthood. And since he said that, 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 that those who offered gifts, he could not bring a bull or a goat. He could not bring those things. He could not do those things. They served a copy and a shadow of what was to come. Now, you may be saying, well, Darren, you know, we've talked so much about the Old Testament, how it points to Christ. But what was the purpose of the Old Testament? The purpose of the Old Testament was eventually to point to Jesus Christ. In the coming weeks, we're going to be looking at the covenants of God which is going to open a whole can of worms for you, and hopefully in a good way. The new covenant and the old covenant, we'll get there. But what he's saying is this. He's not saying that God was double-minded, 
that in the Old Testament, he put out this law, and then he just kind of said, man, I've been a grump lately. Maybe I ought to love people more. And then Jesus comes on the scene. That's liberal theology 101. God is not this angry God in the Old Testament and this lovey-dovey Jesus in the New Testament. You ever seen one of those pictures where Jesus' smile can't ever get off his face, and he just, look, Jesus also tripped over tables and everything else. He's coming with a sword out of his mouth, symbolically or real, I don't know, but he's coming. The point of what he's trying to say is God gave Moses the law, especially the ceremonial law. It was visual. The animals died. It was verbal. But they came in essence of what was really to be. The point is, is that Christ is a substance. Christ is serving in the real tabernacle, in the real heaven, forgiving real sinners in a real holy place. Everything else was just a copy. It was like if you were to take your hand, do you remember doing that as a kid where you took your hand out and you sketched it with a pencil? And, and, and if you took that pencil out and showed the paper that it was drawn on and you said, look, there's my hand. I mean, yeah, kind of, that's kind of your hand, but your hand's really right here, right? So was the Old Testament law to what God was doing in the people of God. Jesus paid the real price for our sins, and Jesus continued to do that. As we close, Amy will put this last bit up. The God who doesn't change, who doesn't serve types and shadows, calls us to a life of progressive heart and life change. When the end of time comes, when the end of time comes, it will be something that he's not looking at the laws you kept. He's looking at the God you served. Thank the Lord that you don't have to keep the law anymore. Amen. Thank the Lord that you are saved by grace through faith because of Jesus alone. Thank the Lord that he gave us someone better. Jesus is the same. Can I just put this in very modern terms? Jesus period cannot, period, get better, get, period, better, period. Does that make sense? That's how a lot of people write these days. He can't get any better. You might get worse as you live out becoming more like Christ, and I might get worse at times. But by his grace, he doesn't need any of us to help prop him up. He reigns and rules forever and ever. What an awesome God we serve. He has a perfect sanctuary, perfect seating, sacrifice, and substance. He is Christ. Will you bow your heads with me this morning? Lord, as we close out our service today, we are grateful, we are thankful as we get ready to sing our last song that the writer of Hebrews took a time out, a review before the test, a cliff notes summary, whatever you want to call it, of everything we've seen, everything we've been, all the weeks that have led up to this oh, since late April through Melchizedek and all the study of chapter 6 and 7, some of those technical language in the New Testament, we are reminded that it's really this simple. I'm a sinner. Jesus is the Savior. I can't save myself. Jesus paid it all. I don't deserve it, but Jesus gave it. Father, may we never lose that simple truth. May that unite us here at Tower View Baptist Church. May unite all true Christians everywhere. May quote-unquote secondary or third-level issues never overtake the basic issue all humanity has. And that is, we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the gift of God, Romans says, is the eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And all those who confess with their mouth and agree with you, Lord, that Jesus is Lord, 
and that you raised him from the dead shall be saved. Father, the book of Hebrews is very complex, but it's yet so simple. It's really all about Jesus. Thank you for giving us the gift of the king, the gift of yourself. Lord, we pray all this today in Jesus' name. Amen.